Welcome to the Book Collector. Our issue for autumn 2018 was devoted to the polar regions. In it was an article entitled Cherry, a bibliophile in Antarctica, written by James Fleming, by whom it is now read. Nancy Mitford cried twice when writing about Captain Scott's last journey, once when describing the inscription on Oates's cross, Hereabouts lies a very gallant gentleman. And again it's something Dr. Atkinson said when the survivors docked at New Zealand. It's made a tremendous impression. I had no idea it would make so much. Underlying her tears, there was, one feels, a very womanly sense of the futility of the whole thing. Science? Yes. But at such a cost? With such ghastly hardships? At one point she speaks of a discussion among the men as to whether they continued to like polar travel if they could do it in their bedroom slippers, as it were. They said no, with one accord. She goes on, Their rewards were a deep spiritual satisfaction and relationships between men who had become more than brothers. This goes to the heart of it, as is evident from many of the accounts written afterwards. But only one book manages to encapsulate the full gamut of emotion and, in a sense, of the poetry in which Scott's tragedy is entwined. That book was The Worst Journey in the World, and the author was the second youngest member of the team, the only amateur and the only intellectual. His name was Apsley Cherry Garrard. He was born in Bedford on the 2nd of January 1886 to wealthy parents. At Oxford, he was described by contemporary as a dark, lean, shy, anxious young man. He studied classics and modern history there and stroked the Christchurch crew to victory in the 1908 Henley Grand Challenge Cup. The following year, Captain Scott started recruiting for his Terra Nova expedition to the South Pole. 8,000 men applied. Despite having appalling eyesight, Cherry was accepted at the last minute perhaps through having the support of Dr. Edward Bill Wilson, Scott's indispensable companion, who had accompanied him on his first Antarctic voyage aboard the Discovery in 1901-4, and who was now on the Terra Nova's roster. A donation of £1,000 to the expedition coffers may also have helped. Scott, the owner, as he was called, was 42. Cherry, all of 24. The Terra Nova was a wooden, three-masted whaler built in 1884. It stank of blubber, but was the best that could be afforded. On the 29th of November, 1910, attended by a huge crowd, it slipped out of Port Chalmers on New Zealand's South Island. On it were 30 tonnes of coal in sacks, two and a half tonnes of petrol in drums, 65 men, 33 dogs, 19 ponies, and several pet rabbits. It lay low in the water. By 11th of January 1911, it was at Cape Evans, McMurdo Sound, where Scott established his base camp. 
Cherry was immediately put in charge of the expedition newspaper, the South Polar Times. In its first two iterations aboard the Discovery, it had been edited by Ernest Shackleton and Louis Bernacchi. On the 22nd of June, the Austral Midwinter, a celebratory dinner was held to celebrate this psychologically important turning point in the calendar. After Scott had given a rousing speech, and with everybody gathered round, Cherry presented him with the season's first issue of the South Polar Times. Scott now read from it out aloud, interrupted by uproarious laughter and indignant barracking. Cherry was as relieved as any first-time author by its reception. It's tempting to think that it was the experience of producing a polar newspaper that awakened in Cherry the notion that he might himself form a book collection. Be that as it may, at the time he was reading Barnaby Rudge. Cherry's first trial of physical strength came in darkest July with an expedition to Cape Crozier on which he was accompanied by Wilson and Lieutenant Henry Birdie Bowers. Their goal was to collect eggs of the Emperor Penguin whose embryos, it was believed, resembled fish and thus might cast light on how life first emerged from the ocean. The distance was 67 miles each way, over which they man-hauled sledges weighing 375 pounds apiece. It took them 19 days to get to Cape Crozier, during which the temperature dropped to minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Their clothes froze rigid, condemning them to remain in the same bending position in which they hauled the sledges. Their toenails came away, the cold was so intense that Cherry's teeth split from their uncontrollable chattering, causing him agony for the rest of his life. Most terrifyingly of all, their tent blew away in a blizzard. For two days they shivered in their sleeping bags while the storm raged above them. Cherry freely admitted he surrendered all hope of survival. Madness or death may give relief, he wrote, but this I know. We on this journey were already beginning to think of death as a friend. On their return to Cape Evans, bearing three emperor penguin eggs, whose contents on later examination proved of limited scientific value, Jerry had to be cut out of his ice-stiffened clothes. They weighed 24 pounds. He recalled the gramophone playing a broken record of George Roby, and Scott encouraging him with the words, You know... This is the hardest journey ever made, before falling asleep. Until Cape Crozier, he might well have been, as Scott wrote, the most unselfish, good-natured fellow in the world. But on that five-week trek, he'd smelt death and become a changed man. It was only to a certain extent that he was reanimated by editing his second issue of the South Polar Times. On the 1st of November at 11pm... Scott set out with his support parties for the pole. Cherry and three others were sent back on the 22nd of December. On the 4th of January 1912, when Scott cut loose and made his final dash, another three were sent back. Among them were Tom Crean and Teddy Evans. On the 20th of February, at the hut, Dr Atkinson saw a single man stumbling out of the ice fields to the south, it was Crean, who'd come for help to bring in Teddy Evans, who had scurvy and was thought likely to die. Since leaving Scott, they'd been held up by ice falls and were in poor shape. 
when he sighted Crean, Atkinson had been on the point of setting out to resupply one-ton depot, the last and most important cache of provisions which Scott had estimated he should reach on his return journey by the 1st of March or thereabouts. But now there was Evans to be cared for. Atkinson decided it was his duty to remain with the sick man. Who then should go to one ton? The choice was between Wright, a scientist, or Cherry. Wright could not be spared, so Cherry it was. He had no experience of navigation, had never driven dogs before, and had chronically bad eyesight. I'm right in it, he wrote in his diary. On the 26th of February, he left for one ton with a man called Dmitri Garov and a team of dogs. They reached the depot on the 4th of March. They had supplies to go another four days to the south. After that, their dog food would run out and they'd have to kill dogs, which Scott had expressly forbidden as he wanted them for the next season's sledging. But Scott's circumstances had changed since he gave those orders. He was now no distance away and in desperate need of what Cherry alone could have delivered. It began to blizzard. Dimitri developed partial paralysis in his right arm and side. So which was it to be? Going south in the hope of bumping into Scott in a whiteout or sitting tight? Cherry did nothing and on 10th of March turned north on his return journey. On reaching Hut Point he had time to dwell on his actions and the more he brooded, the more he reproached himself for not having done what would have been both foolish and reckless to do. Crushed by depression, he started hearing bells. At times he was so enfeebled that he had to get round the hut on hands and knees. Soon he convinced himself that at one time he'd been asked a question that he didn't properly understand, yet had been found wanting. When, on the 12th of November, 1912, Scott's tent was found with its three dead men, Scott, Wilson and Bowers, sole remnants of the five-strong party that had set out for the South Pole. Cherry was devastated. The tent was only 11 miles from One Ton Depot. He now understood that the question he'd been asked had been one of life and death. It is all too horrible, he wrote. I am almost afraid to go to sleep now. Cherry was wrong. Nothing could have been done in the circumstances to save Scott. But the moment the expedition birthed in New Zealand, the newspapers centred a story and began sniping at him. Slowly, the cumulative effects of physical pain, private guilt and public attention merged with other health problems to chain him in the years of depression from which he never truly recovered. Thus did fame close on him the fame that clung to him, that would make book dealers stare at him when he attended auctions at Hodgson's and Sotheby's, always bidding from the back of the room, usually alone. The question soon arose as to who should write the official account of the expedition. Scott's diaries clearly were worth a volume to themselves, but it was important to have a third party's perspective. Cherry, as the most literary-minded of the officers, was the obvious choice. His dictum, after all, was that exploration is the physical expression of the intellectual passion. But he had his doubts. As he later explained, I never meant to write a book. 
I rather despised those who did so of being of an inferior brand to those who did things and said nothing about them. Nevertheless, when approached, he accepted the offer readily, seeing it, perhaps, as a way to vindicate his inaction at one ton. Before he started, however, war broke out with Germany. Like most of his polar compatriots, he enlisted immediately. His posting to an armoured car unit was cut short when he collapsed with a recurrence of colitis that had first beset him in Antarctica. Invalided out of service, he retired to write letters to the Times and to plan a book of his polar experiences. Its title, The Worst Journey in the World, was suggested by George Bernard Shaw, Cherry's neighbour and, in a union of complete opposites, close friend. The slaughter of 1914-18, to 18, the subsequent industrial depression, Britain's apparent decline, ill health, real and imagined, all were working on Cherry as he read and reread his own journals and spliced the accounts of his fellow explorers into his own. Somehow he rose above it all. The travails, the fears, the trauma of Scott's death, all, it now seemed, could be relegated to a sort of pre-fall heroism. The result was a triumph for youthful endeavour over the horrors of war for the essential innocence of man. The book possessed a charm that was universally recognised from the first moment of publication. The Worst Journey was published by Constable in 1922 in two bindings. It was Shaw again who had a hand in this, for he told Cherry that he'd published his own books himself, leaving to Constable the tedious details of printing, distribution and accounting. Cherry naturally thought that what was good enough for his famous friend would be good enough for him, and then went one further. He would not only choose the cover design, but pay for the production costs himself. The print run was a 1500 two-volume boxed sets. The first binding, which Cherry preferred since it looked spectacularly polar, had pale blue boards and linen-backed spines with printed labels. Despite excellent reviews, sales were disappointing. None of the circulating libraries, such as Smith's and Moody's, were keen on it because the boards would soon become finger-marked and the set would have needed recasing. It is unknown how many copies were bound in this way, but at some point, when more sheets were being bound, boards and spine were bound in a darker mid-blue cloth with the title in gilt on the spine and the front board. In Let Heroes Speak by Michael Rosso, it stated that the later binding is, quote, significantly scarcer than the previous polar binding. At the same time, a small run of specially printed copies was exported to the American house of Dorans, in whose hands it sank. In 1923, there was a second edition, with small corrections and the omission of certain plates, and a preface by Cherry. In 1924, there was a Braille edition, and in 1929, the whole was reissued by Constable with a masterly publicity blurb by Shaw. Quote, it was perhaps the only real stroke of luck in Scott's ill-fated expedition that Cherry Garrard, the one survivor of the winter journey, happened to be able to describe it so effectively. In 1930, a single-volume edition was published in the States by Dial Press at $5. The timing was flawless, as Richard Byrd was then claiming to have flown over the South Pole 
in an aluminium aircraft. This time Cherry's prose received high acclaim. Both these editions drifted out of print in due course, but in 1937 Chateau brought out an edition in a single volume, and in June of the same year, with Shaw once again acting as enabler, Alan Lane at Penguin published The Worst Journey in two sixpenny volumes, numbers 99 and 100. A grand piece of production in pinkish covers and dust wrappers. It was reissued again for the Forces Book Club in 1943 as an example of what men were capable of when under pressure, and in 1947 as a talking book for the blind. Since then, it has rarely been out of print. These were good times for Cherry. Despite having a high turnover in doctors, 17 in two years, according to his biographer, he'd always been poorly for one reason or another, but now the tide turned. Publishers knocked at his door. A television appearance was talked of, and overcoming his natural resistance to publicity, he took part in a live televised talk on the Antarctic. Further, in 1939, he had married a student nurse, Angela Turner, who was many years his younger. But the war had turned him in on himself once again, and in 1946, after suffering delusional episodes, he suffered a stroke. When recovered, the decision was taken to sell Lamer Park, his family home, and to move to central London. The contents of Lamer, including the library, were packed off to auction, but as the books were going through Hodgson's sale room in Chancery Lane, Cherry suddenly decided he was too fond of them to lose them all. Some he bought back, others he removed from the catalogue just as it was being printed, much to the annoyance of old John Hodgson. For a while, it seemed as though he was in clear water. He bought at Shaw's sale in 1949 and began to haunt the auction rooms. Then, in 1952, there appeared a new one-volume edition of The Worst Journey, bound in blue buckram and priced at 12 shillings and sixpence. The publishing arrangement was similar to that of the 1922 edition. Both the title page and the dust wrapper state that the book was, quote, published by the author and distributed by Chateau and Windus. Cherry's contribution this time was a short postscript. In it, he summed up the result of 38 years mulling over the relationship between Scott's death and his own failure to lay down additional supplies. Ignoring the defects in Scott's planning, he declared that the tragedy was no human's fault. It was simply that the polar party's diet had lacked the appropriate vitamins. Cherry's biographer, Sarah Wheeler, has described the postscript as, quote, a confused essay which adds little to the general reader's understanding of what had unfolded. Fred Snelling, clerk at Hodgson's auction rooms at the time, had many conversations with Cherry. When the postscript was published, Cherry told him it made the whole thing definitive. It will scotch all stories, false rumours, canard. It will tell the full truth. But when Snelling read it, he couldn't understand what Cherry was talking about. Indeed, he thought he was growing rather too unstable for his own sake. To some extent, that postscript appears to have loosened the grip his memory had over him. Having discovered Hodgson's when the Lamer Library was being sold, he started to buy substantially on his own account. The dates can be deduced from Sotheby's catalogue of their sale on behalf of his widow on the 5th of June 1961. His earliest purchase from Sotheby's 
was the Harmsworth copy of Thomas Akempis's De Imitatione Christi, 1501, in December 1947, and his latest, a group of travel books from Sir David Eccles' sale in 1953. In 1952, Cherry's renown was such that he was guest of honour at the Antiquarian Booksellers Association dinner at the Mayfair Hotel. Sarah Wheeler wrote well when she said that, quote, Many adventurers write books, but Cherry's transformation of a journey that was almost superhuman into a book that approached poetic genius was unique. It must have showed at that dinner, for 30 years later, a guest recalled the generosity, clarity and conviction of all that he said. The first trace of him in the book collector appears in the autumn issue of 1953 when a correspondent reporting on the Sotheby sale of 22nd and 23rd of June wrote that, quote, three of the most desirable books fell to Mr. Cherry Garrard's calm but determined bidding. The books included Herbert's The Temple, 1633, in a contemporary Cambridge binding, knocked down to him for £850, the highest price for the book since the Terry copy was sold for $3,600 in 1935, and George Moertz, a relation or journal of the beginning and proceedings of the English plantation settled at Plymouth in New England, 1622. This is the earliest account of the Pilgrim Fathers and, the correspondent continued, only the second copy of this very rare book to be sold in the past 25 years. In 1953, it cost Cherry £1,300. When sold by his widow in 1961, Mags had to go to £2,400. The last of these desirable books was a volume containing four Elizabethan works that included a new book called The Ship of Safeguard, 1569, on which the hammer fell at £320. In 1961, the same book alone cost John Fleming £600. In 1956, John Hayward, editor of The Book Collector, reported that only 12 copies of the second 1751 edition of Gray's An Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard had passed through the rooms in the past 35 years. He had one copy and Cherry another. After Cherry's death in the Barclay Hotel on 18th of May 1959, Hayward took the opportunity to reflect on Cherry's auction style. Quote, he used to bid in person, always standing at the back of the room, catalogue in hand and pencil poised, and frequently had to pay dearly for challenging the professionals at the table. This is more or less the same as Snelling's recollection. Quote, it is rather a remarkable thing, perhaps, but it is certainly a fact that the man who had braved all mental and physical vicissitudes of a hazardous polar expedition shouldn't really have been allowed out alone in London, and particularly not into the book auction rooms. He appeared to be quite oblivious that he was often being made a fall guy when he attended a sale. Snelling went on to say that Cherry habitually wore a shabby raincoat and hat, his auction hat, under the impression that the trade would think him a man of no financial consequence. In conclusion, he was, quote, an extraordinary but very simple man who stood very little chance at all with the professional sharks of our trade. It has been said that Cherry bid foolishly, that in reality he was only bidding against himself, 
but that can only have been true if he then bought from the dealers and paid their markup on books whose prices he had forced up by his own bidding. But he rarely bought from the trade, usually only at auction. He had little time for them, nor they for him. It must have been galling at his sale when the dealers had to stump up a great deal more for his books than he'd paid for them. What rhyme or rhythm underpinned Cherry's collection? Perhaps there was none, other than a pining for an age of perceived innocence of which he had seen the last brutal gasps. According to his widow, he made himself something of an expert on early books of travel, illustrated manuscripts and the English classics. The authors most represented at Cherry's sale had little in common, being Lamb, nine titles, Sir Walter Raleigh, seven titles, and Savonarola, also seven titles. There were a few travel books, mostly from the Eccles sale. William Scoresby, 1820, An Account of the Polar Regions in Two Volumes, was the only obviously polar title. The bulk of his collection, and certainly the bulk of its value, lay in those stately volumes on which his wife had remarked. One of these, a missile for use of Paris with Canada, Paris, Kirker, 1350-60, was awarded four pages of description by Sotheby's plus an illustration. It had descended from the private chapel of a member of the French royal family to the Dukes of Gotha in 1745 from the collection of J.B. Hune, the court preacher, who'd bought it in about 1720 in Paris. From Gotha, it had gone to the 8th Earl of Denby, 1823-1892, to whose descendants had sold it at Sotheby's on the 3rd of April, 1950, as Lot 1 for £5,000. Now, it made £22,000, which was one-third of the total sale value of £64,125. Ten of the lots made over a thousand pounds, which was a very considerable sum of money in terms of 1961 purchasing power, when the average cost of a house was 2,350, and all far more than the sums Cherry had paid for them. For instance, Cherry's Appianus Astronomicum 1540, 380 pounds in 1951, made 1,400 pounds. His Brescia Dante 1487. 180 in 1949 at G.B. Shaw's sale, made 780. And astonishingly, his Lopez de Gomara's Historia General de las Indias, 1553, 460 pounds in 1951, went to Krauss for 2,800. Judging by the number of books described by Sotheby's as having been rebound, his choice of condition left something to be desired but his choice of subject matter was excellent. These were books that had been held for a mere ten years. To use modern parlance, the boy done good. Nicholas Barker, for fifty years the owner and editor of this journal, remembers Cherry from his youth when he found his tall, thin figure, high voice and rapid, jerky movements strange but compelling. By the time of Cherry's sale, Barker was himself an habitué of the rooms. In his opinion, the trade were bemused by Cherry and embarrassed by his unself-conscious eccentricity. That word embarrassed is so interesting. Few book dealers achieved public, undeniable fame as Cherry had done, and here, bidding against them, was the man himself. He'd been out with Scott, 
He'd seen the three corpses lying side by side in that snowbound tent, and if rumour was to be believed, still saw their mottled, frost-eaten faces in his nightmares. Could he really have saved Scott? They would have stared at Cherry, trying to prize the truth from his soul. It must have been like associating with a man whom everyone knew had committed a frightful crime, but who the jury had acquitted. That word embarrassed has the ring of accuracy. It is unknown which of Cherry's books were sold privately by his widow. Snelling details his purchase of all four Shakespeare folios for £7,100, yet only the second folio is on record as being resold. Another notable absentee from his sale was his copy of the 1926 edition of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, for which Cherry had subscribed 30 guineas. Lawrence had inscribed it, A, C hyphen G, from T. E. Shaw. Shamefacedly, for I feel that my bad journey is so much worse told than his. A complete copy in December 1991, it fetched $65,000 at Christie's New York. Other cherry items have surfaced. His sledge harness, and Scott's pipe, come to that, is in the collection at the Library of the Antarctic Circle. His lambskin inner mittens were sold at Bonhams on the 7th of February 2018 for £6,250, having made 1,820 in September 1999. 28 letters to his mother and six from his mother, plus four telegrams, all dated between 1910 and 1913, were sold at Christie's South Kensington in 2012 for £56,000. Of the books that he collected, in 2016 a Sokol catalogue offered the Duchastel Hours, once in the collection of Apsley Cherry Garrard, for £425,000. First editions of The Worst Journey have bobbled around from as low as £200 for a copy repaired with tape in 2017, to £1,700 for an ex-library copy again in 2017, to a fine copy that was sold at Bonham's Polar Sale of 2012 for £19,000. Lurching in and out of stability, Cherry had a breakdown in 1953 from which he never fully recovered. Coincidentally, he was attended by Dr George Mathias, who had also seen both Reginald Smith and Mrs Wilson, and was thus no stranger to the events of 1912. Six years later, the last of his line, Cherry was buried at St Helens, Wheathampstead, Hertfordshire, where, in 1962, a small statue by Ivor Roberts-Jones was unveiled. At his funeral, the mourners sang Bunyan's He Who Would Valiant Be. That was Cherry, read by James Fleming. 
Copies of the Polar Issue are still available at £20 each via www.thebookcollector.co.uk.